welcome back to Let's Be Frank. I'm your host, Frank Severich, and frankly, I am quite excited to have you here. We have a stellar show for you today. Every week, I talk with friends, family, experts about news, policy, sports, culture, and whatever else I find interesting. This week, I am taking us on a journey to the stars. The first movie that I remember seeing is The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know how old I was exactly, but according to my mom, I probably would have been about three years old. I remember being absolutely spellbound and captivated by it. As I grew up, I continued to be drawn to the stars. Star Trek The Next Generation was appointment viewing in our house growing up. I was even lucky enough to receive a postcard from Worf. Strangely, however, Worf's handwriting on the postcard is very similar to my dad's handwriting. Anyway... I grew up loving space. I spent nights staring at the sky, amazed by the immeasurable expanse of it all. And then I met somebody who changed the way I look at the sky forever. I went to the University of Maryland for my undergrad degree. I was an English and theater double major. In other words, two ways to make no money after I graduated. As a part of my course load, I was required to take some non-major science classes. I saw astronomy listed and decided to give it a shot. I was mildly terrified walking into class. It was a massive lecture hall, probably 200 or so students. I was a never I was never a strong scientist. Uh, student, uh, and I remember feeling really worried about whether I would be able to keep up. I knew that the professor would make or break the class. And lucky for me, my professor was Dr. Melissa Hayes Gerke. Her class was so good, in fact, that it led me to co-create a puppet show called The Solar System Show the year after I graduated from University of Maryland. The Solar System Show debuted at the National Air and Space Museum and toured regionally, and that show truly wouldn't have been possible without the infectious positivity and enthusiasm from Dr. Hayes Gerke, whose passion for astronomy changed the way I look at our planet and our place in the universe. I am joined today by the one and only Dr. Melissa Hayes Kirky, whom I have not spoken to since I completed her class 15 years ago. This is a dream come true. Dr. Melissa Hayes Gerke, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Frank. It's really nice to be here. I'm glad that you reached out to me about it. I'm really glad that I did. It's um, it's just a thrill to see you. And um, I think I want to dive in with, uh, with a quick question. Um, mm-hmm. We were talking briefly before we started recording. Can you tell the audience about the tricycle lecture that you give? Yes. So the tricycle lecture is in a class on Newton's three laws of motion. And the third law of motion is that for every action force, there's an equal and opposite reaction force. And so there's a lot of ways that you can demonstrate it, but I really like to try to make it memorable for the students. And so the uh, physics demo department luckily has this really cool demo for it. And so they have a adult sized tricycle and on the back of the tricycle, there's a little metal basket and they put a large fire extinguisher on the basket with uh, just the carbon dioxide, pressurized carbon dioxide in it. And uh, the nozzle is pointing backward. And so I can get on the tricycle And with the nozzle pointing back, I can let go on the uh, fire extinguisher and to do the equal and opposite forces. 
there is pressurized gas. And so that pressure exerts a force uh, shooting the gas out the back, which pushes the tricycle across the front. And so the tricycle uh, rapidly accelerates <laughs> toward the opposite <laughs> wall of the lecture hall. And uh, predictably, I always forget where the brakes are. And so I have to find <laughs> them at the last moment. And I haven't crashed yet, but I usually do end up shrieking a bit with it. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that students remember. And I always get positive comments about it because it sticks out to them. Yeah, I, I, I was telling you before we started recording, but I have a memory of that. I mean, it's very memorable to have your professor get on a tricycle in, in the front of class, let alone to have a jetpack uh, <laughs> with a fire extinguisher. And yes. I had this image burned in my mind of that happening. And I was like, that can't be real. That had to have been a dream or something. <laughs> but it's in my notebook, which I found before our interview, which I, I just, it's it's wonderful. And I think um, uh, creative lesson planning like that is like one of the reasons why your class really stood out to me. Um, uh, going way, I want to hear a lot about how you come up with uh, lesson plans and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff and making it accessible for students because uh, I, I taught kindergarten for a year. Um, and so I'm very interested in teaching. But first, I want to know, I want to get to know you a little bit better. When did you first become interested in the stars? Well, it was a long time ago, and I'm not sure exactly what got me interested, but it was definitely elementary school, because I remember going through our, I came from a very rural area of Pennsylvania, and uh, our elementary school had a very small library, and I remember kind of going through the library and picking out the books, and so I think I probably read every nonfiction astronomy book in the library because there weren't that many of them. But at some point, I did get interested enough to go and do that. And not only were the books, I mean, because this was a long time ago, but the books were also old. And so they had really outdated things in them, like saying quasars are the edge of the universe and you know all these different things that were totally not accurate, but it still got me interested. And I do remember in uh, 1986, trying to go out at night and find Halley's Comet. And mm. the thing about that was the appearance of Halley's Comet in 1986 was disappointing, to say the least. It was not very distinctive. It was definitely visible with the naked eye in the area I was from because it's very rural, so it does get really dark. But it, since it wasn't very distinctive, it was really just hard to pick out from the stars. And um, I was too young and inexperienced and I never found it. But I do remember having some kind of star chart and trying to go out and looking for it and you know, not seeing it. <laughs> but so it was it was been quite a while. And then I've been interested ever since. And that has fed a uh, love of science fiction as well. Yeah. So um, out of curiosity, do you remember the first time that you looked into a telescope or was there a moment? I guess even outside of that, was there a moment where you decided this is the path I want to walk down in life? This is the thing that I am most interested in, that I'm most passionate about, and I want to I want to follow this as my dream. Well, actually, when I went to college, I was going to go into chemistry. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in astronomy, but I was thinking about it more as like a hobby, 
you know, that you know, oh, there's not going to be a lot of jobs out there in astronomy. You know, I don't want to, that's not what I'm going to do for a career, but I'll, you know, I'm interested in it. But then I got to college and uh, kind of the first chemistry class told me I wasn't going to be doing chemistry. So I ended up going into physics and through the physics, there were the option of several astronomy courses that you could take along with the physics and there was a planetary science department so i ended up double majoring with the planetary science as well and taking those courses and so with all of those i realized that that was the aspect of physics that i really enjoyed the most was astronomy basically and so i did end up applying for graduate school in astronomy and that's how i ended up there and you went to MIT for your graduate for undergrad, school? Yeah. For undergrad, okay. Yeah. Very cool. And Boston and then, University for grad school. Boston University for your yeah. grad school. And you talked about, I believe, star clusters in your dissertation. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I, w- I did an observational thesis. So I did use telescopes for my thesis. And yes, I studied open star clusters. What is... So I'm a little biased here. And also, this is a audio medium. Uh, so mm-hmm. unfortunately, I can't show our audience these uh, pictures, but maybe I can link to them. There are some mm-hmm. amazing photographs you have taken through a telescope uh, that uh-huh. you have posted on your website, which are just beautiful. Um, what is the most amazing thing you've seen through a telescope? Well, actually... So when I was doing the observing for my thesis, uh, I was not observing by eye. So most professional telescope work, professional observational work is done with recording the light onto CCD cameras, which are sort of like digital cameras, like in your phone. And so you don't actually get to see them with your eye. And the thing is that typical CCD images are grayscale. So all of the pretty pictures that you see, even from something like the Hubble Space Telescope, have to be taken through multiple color filters and then combined digitally to make a color image. And so the best experience I've had looking through a telescope is actually probably has been more recent than my thesis. So I forget what year it was. My husband and I for spring break went to Arizona, the Tucson area, and Mount Lemmon Observatory has uh, a public program. And it's actually something that you get reserved tickets for, you pay because it's actually a pretty elaborate program. But they have a telescope that I believe is about 36 inches in diameter. And Mm. it's one of the largest telescopes that you can look through by eye. So Mm. they don't have a CCD camera. Well, they do have a CCD camera they can use but the public program you look through by eye. And that telescope is large enough that when you look through it, you can actually see colors on stellar objects. Hmm. So typically when you look through an amateur sized telescope, you look at something like the Orion Nebula, which if you see a pretty picture of it, it looks like these pinks and grays and blues. And it's really, it's really pretty. If you look at it by eye, it looks like kind of a green or a gray smudge. (laughs) And that's because the light is not bright enough to activate the color receptors in your eye. It only activates basically the black and white ones. And so you have to get more light to do that. And so this telescope at the Mount Lemmon Sky Center is big enough that you can actually start to see colors just looking through the telescope. And so I looked at a few things like the Eskimo Nebula 
which hmm. if you, you, know, you pull that up and you see a Google image, it has very distinct colors. And it was like, wow, I can see those colors on that. And um, a couple galaxies. And you know, similarly, you could actually see the color in them. And that was really amazing. That's that's incredible. I, mm-hmm. So just quickly on the CCD um, imaging that needs to be done through most yeah. telescopes that you were describing. So is that in order to get an image, are you essentially flying blind? Are you just plotting coordinates oh. into a computer and then telling the computer, I want to look at this part of the sky. It takes an image and then sh- shoots it back to you. Yeah. So you are correct that the way you find something is you need to know its celestial coordinates. So there's a coordinate system that's similar to longitude and latitude. It's called right ascension declination. And so you put in those coordinates typically into a computer that's just running software to uh, understand the coordinate system. And it will turn and point the telescope at the direction. And then usually you'll take a shorter exposure image just to make sure you're in the right spot. And if you need to do any better centering or something, and then yeah, it it takes an image and it outputs the image to your computer screen. So you're not at the you're not at the telescope. You're sitting in a room, usually adjacent to this telescope, but it could be across the country or across the world from the telescope. Wow, that's wild. Um, but uh, although I suppose good during pandemic times uh, yes, to be able to yeah. be remote. Uh, well, in that except way. that there are still people that have to maintain the telescopes. And that was a tough oh, sure. thing during the pandemic was uh, how that was all going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope. Did they come up with any sort of regimen that they're uh, able to practice did. now? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. The observatories in, in on Earth are still working. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, so have you spent a lot of time? That, okay, so here's another memory I have from doing your class 15 years ago. I went to the University of Maryland Observatory. I can't remember if you were there, but I know our TA, I believe the TAs were there. And mm-hmm. you probably were there too. And it was it, it was the full class, I think. And I would have been around 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. on like a Thursday or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to look through uh, some of the equipment that was set up there. Um, is most of your work done? Well, I guess this is getting into the question of the astronomy, like career paths, uh, which you were mm-hmm. talking about earlier. But do you spend like a night working in an observatory? Is that a part of your work? I mean, I know you teach, so I don't know mm-hmm. how often you're doing that or... I don't know. What, what's, it, what's it like to work in an observatory? Yeah. So uh, these days at the University of Maryland, so I'm a principal lecturer now. I think at the time I was teaching you, I was a lecturer. So I've moved up yeah. the ranks. I'm a principal lecturer. And uh, so my primary job is teaching. And so I am no longer paid to do research. So I've moved into the teaching realm. However, uh, some of the classes that I teach do have students doing research. So, you know, I'm definitely keeping up with uh, the skills that I need for that. And so there's a couple different ways that astronomers do observing. So for the for space telescopes, obviously they can't go to space to you know, use the telescopes. So really they just submit a list of objects that they need to be observed hmm. and, you know, how long they should be observed for, what color filters should we be looking for? So what type of light will be detected? And that's just all kind of two order. And uh, somebody at the Space Telescope Control Center is uploading that and telling the telescope what to do. 
for the major telescopes, like eight and 10 meter telescopes, that can often be the way that those work as well, that there is a dedicated or actually probably several um, dedicated observers who really know how to work the telescopes and you essentially send them a list of what you want to observe and how and uh, in what ways and then they will do it. And the reason that that is done is instead of the actual astronomer necessarily going and doing it is because the telescopes cost a lot of money. And so you don't want to accidentally do anything that might damage anything. And you don't want to waste time. That's probably mm-hmm. the more important thing is that you know time is money on those telescopes. There's way more demand than there is time on the telescopes. And so they need to make sure things keep moving. And so the dedicated observers will know that. It's often possible for the astronomer to go to the telescope and kind of watch and monitor things being done so that they can see kind of what data quality is coming in and those types of things, but they wouldn't actually be controlling the telescope. For smaller professional level telescopes, like on one or two meter size ranges, that's where people still go to the observatory and actually do things themselves but they won't physically be at the telescope. There will be a control room that's usually somewhere else in the building that is moving the telescope around. Um, and if nothing else, because you don't want to have your warm body next to the telescope creating heat currents. And yeah, so it's controlled from another room even there. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. I never would have thought about the heat currents being a factor that would that affect imaging. That is actually a, a thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it makes for uh, the turbulence makes for what we call seeing, which is kind of why stars twinkle. So it's the turbulence that kind of uh, mixes ah. up the atmosphere a little bit, and that creates less sharp images. Huh. Okay. Fascinating. Um, yeah. I could go on about telescopes all day, but I also want to ask while I have you here, mm-hmm. just a really small question, kind of a basic general question. Um, how is the universe created? Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, do you have a, a few billion years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Why not? Why not? Or, you yeah. know, the next half hour or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, so the, the, best theory that we have right now and again if you go back to thinking 15 years ago in your class here frank mm-hmm. theory means something that has been tested and has been found to hold up to evidence at least that we have so far it's not to say that we can't find something later on to make us adjust that theory but it has so far followed all of the evidence that we have so our best theory about the start of the universe is what we call the big bang And so at that point of the Big Bang, which was about 13.7 billion years ago, the observable universe as we know it right now was uh, collapsed into the size of an infinitesimally small point. Now that's not the whole universe, just the universe we can see. When I say the observable universe, I mean the parts of the universe that we can see. And so, all of the parts that we can't see were also shrunk down into small, small bits. But what I'm talking about is the part that we can see. And then for some reason, and we don't really know why, why this started, the observable universe and the rest of the universe began to expand rapidly in all directions. And that's something that is still 
very much a source of or a, a source of investigation. A point of investigation is why did it start happening? And yeah, did it, um, did it want to expand? Did it yeah, just start expanding? Expansion did it, to yeah. happen? And so after that, since that time, thirteen point seven billion years ago, the universe has been expanding. And as it expands, it continues to get less dense, okay, in terms of the uh, matter density. And also it becomes cooler on average. And so eventually it's going to be expanding forever. And eventually it will just keep expanding and things will cool off and trillions and trillions of years in the future will essentially have what we call the heat death of the universe. Basically everything just cools off to absolute zero. Huh. eventually that's gonna be a really 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 long time so don't lose any sleep over that <laughs> okay all right good good glad to hear yeah. it. well before then i believe the sun will expand and and consume the planet is that correct yeah yeah that's okay, true too cool. so yeah. we'd have to go someplace else to see the rest of it yeah <laughs> yeah we can go over to mars and then we'll go back to yes, Jupiter. Yeah. i have I, I just want to show you i don't know if you can see it but i have my notes i have yeah. The scientific method documented there. Right. With, yes. Yes. Good. Good. Yes. Uh, which you know um, was uh, when you when you were uh, describing the theory, it took me back to the class where I was taking those notes on the mm-hmm. uh, scientific method. Yes. Um, so the solar. Okay. So everything is in an infinitesimally small point. Yes. It starts to expand. It's still expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that means the, the galaxies are spreading further and further apart yes. currently, even right now. Mm-hmm. At some point, our solar system and the Earth is created. I'm going to mm-hmm. test my knowledge here. I believe what okay. happened was that different... Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to screw this up. Can you just describe how our solar system and Earth was created? I believe it was just from uh, matter kind of coming together it, it, due to gravity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So again, our best theory on this, and this is something that we have a lot of evidence for because we can see other parts of this process happening around us in the galaxy. So um, at one point, our solar system began in what we call a giant molecular cloud, which is basically just a huge, huge, huge cloud of very cold gas and dust in the galaxy. And so at one point, some kind of a clump, a little bit of that cloud that was a little bit denser than the rest of it, got maybe jostled or something by the rest of the cloud. It became hmm. just dense enough so that it had enough gravitational force on itself to start collapsing inward from gravity. Hmm. And so as that gas cloud started collapsing inward, 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 it also started to spin more rapidly And that's just because initially the gas cloud would have had kind of random motions of the gas in it. But with random motions, there's still going to be a little bit more going one way than the other way. And then as the gas cloud shrinks, it will amplify that spin. So it will start spinning more rapidly. And um, particles that are spinning rapidly in a cloud will tend to collide and force themselves into a disk shape. So we've got this roughly spherical part of a cloud that's collapsing inward, starting to spin faster and uh, flattening out into a disk. The gas is also getting denser, and so it's tending to heat up as well. And the gas that was in the center of the disk would collapse into the densest part, and that became the sun. So eventually began nuclear fusion, thermonuclear fusion, and became the sun. And then within the disk of gas is where the planets formed. 
And they sort of, if my memory serves, sort of separated by, um, I, I guess, the different types of metals, the heavier metals versus <laughs> the lighter gases. So as, um, so like mercury, for instance, is like a, a rock. It is just a yes. rock. There's not much of an atmosphere there. Venus, which is second planet, is kind of similar to Earth, actually. Like mm-hmm. it has a solid... Um, surface and then Mm -hmm. like really cloudy atmosphere not really suitable for life earth is just right it's not too hot not too cold and then after mars it starts to get even more gaseous jovian planets i believe are Mm -hmm. what they're called right is that correct yes yes and and those are more gaseous planets that are made up of um what are they made up of uh so primarily hydrogen helium gas and then a little bit of rocks and metals like the terrestrial planets. So if you went to Jupiter, for instance, mm-hmm. would you see if it's if it's gas? All right. Let's let's, let's just imagine we're on our Firefly class uh, mm-hmm. starship and we fly into Jupiter. What do we see? Like if we enter the atmosphere of Jupiter, are we seeing clouds? Well, are we seeing? Yeah. So at you got to kind of think about that gas can be transparent and it can be opaque. So right. just like here on the earth, most of our atmosphere, which is gas is transparent. We see right through it, but then in the right conditions, water molecules can condense and float in the atmosphere. They become clouds and we can no longer see through it. If it's dense enough, if it's like partly, then we get what we think about as like fog or mist where you can, you know, it's partly obscuring and making it hard to see, but it's not completely obscuring your view. And so those states also exist in Jupiter's atmosphere. So depending on exactly where you are, it might be low enough density that there is gas around you, but you can see through it. And so <laughs> you, know, you don't really know if it's there as much. And then there can be clouds and there are clouds of things like ammonia on us, um, Jupiter and ammonium hydrosulfide and uh, just a bunch of different kind of chemicals that are at just the right temperature to condense. So their condensation Mm. temperature is just right for those layers of Jupiter. And Mm. as you go down into Jupiter, it gets hotter. So different types of things can condense oh. and become droplets that float in the atmosphere. Huh. And so it depends on exactly where you are in Jupiter, what you would see. However, before you get tremendously far, the pressure, the atmospheric pressure would probably crush you or your spaceship or whatever you have. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's not go into Jupiter then. Let's stay out yeah, of Jupiter. Yeah. Um so it's been 15 years since I took your class. I imagine a lot in the field of astronomy has changed. I know that there mm-hmm. has been a lot that, you know, I, I've followed through the news and stuff, but I am not reading the scientific journals and keeping up with the literature in the same way that you, an astronomer, would be. What do you think is the most exciting story in astronomy from the last 15 years? Not to put you on the spot, but just out of curiosity, right, what right. what are you seeing that you're excited about? Yeah. So putting it in the last 15 years, I think, makes a pretty clear cut, and that is gravitational waves. So the fact tell that me we more. actually... What? I'm sorry? I, I said, tell me more. I, I, oh, I don't know what more. that yes. means. Yeah. So um, gravitational waves 
are actually waves of space time that are created by objects with mass that move. And the ones that we can detect, they've got to be pretty dense or pretty massive. And so the reason that this is such a big deal is that way back when Einstein predicted in his theory of general relativity that there could be gravitational waves. And that was something that since then, astronomers really have been trying to figure out how can you measure these, detect these, partly to uh, you know, confirm Einstein, but also partly because it would be a tool that we could use to study different types of objects in the universe. And so since then, you know, we've been looking and looking and looking for them, and we were unable to detect them until um, 2015, if I remember correctly on the date hmm. on that, it was 2015. And so that was a big deal. And since then, you know, we've detected a number of gravitational wave events. And as our technology is improving and kind of our practice with detecting them and analyzing the data from them has improved, we've been able to learn more and more from those objects. Can you tell me more just because I'm a total layman, I was an English and a theater major, apologies. But yeah, can you yeah. tell me more about what gravitational waves allow us to be able to learn more? How, how does it allow us to learn more mm-hmm. about the universe? Okay. Yeah. So let's kind of, let's think about what we mean when I said the gravitational waves were waves of space-time. So let's think about a common analogy for space-time. So a common analogy is uh, like a trampoline or a rubber sheet, essentially, but I'm going to just call it a trampoline because it's a little bit more uh, every day that we think about. And so the surface of the trampoline is representing space-time and the way that gravity is created is by bending space-time or bending the surface of the trampoline. So if you imagine you've got a trampoline and you take a bowling ball and set it down on the trampoline, it's going to make the trampoline sag down in. And it's going to have kind of like a V-shaped sag. But it's a V-shape, not just in like two dimensions, like the V on a page, but you spin it around. It's like a cone shape. Now, in reality, space is three dimensions, not the two dimensions of the trampoline. So you have to try to somehow imagine in your head that that cone shape around the bowling ball goes in all directions. So (laughs) imagine for a second, you take that trampoline with the bowling ball in it, and you have a marble, and you set it down a little ways away from the bowling ball and let it go. It's going to roll down the dip and you know, smack into the bowling ball. That's gravity. So the curve in space-time, the curve in the trampoline is what's causing gravity that we feel as a force. We can't see hmm. space-time curving, but that's what's causing it. So here on the earth, if we jump up, we're pulled back down to the earth because of the gravitational force between the earth and us. And what's happening is the earth is causing a bend in space-time around it And we're essentially trying to go up that bend when we jump, but we can't, so we fall back down and we're pulled back down. So let's take this analogy a little farther. Imagine that, um, let's see how we wanna do this. So you've got the bowling ball on the trampoline. Let's imagine that we are on the earth, we're on a marble, out at the edge of the trampoline 
so we're not going to fall into the bowling ball yeah we're so but now imagine that we're sitting there on the earth and somebody takes the bowling ball and just drags it along the trampoline it's going to drag that curve with it and we could detect from our little marble on the earth the fact that the trampoline's curvature mm. is changing Mm-hmm. That's essentially like a wave. You could imagine being more complicated. You're sitting on the earth, on the marble, at the edge of the trampoline. If somebody took that bowling ball and just moved it like in a circle around on the trampoline, it would take that curve in the trampoline with it, mm-hmm. and the waves would ripple out toward us. Mm-hmm. That's what we're detecting when we say that we detected a gravitational wave from two black holes orbiting each other. The black holes are causing a curve in space-time as they orbit each other, that curve is moving with them and the waves ripple outward toward us. And then eventually we detect them here on the earth. And that's probably why gravitational waves are uh, so important is because you're actually able to prove that two black holes exist in that space and that they are orbiting each other. Is yes. that correct? So the characteristic of the wave that we receive lets us kind of back, back calculate the density and the mass of the objects. And hmm. so then we can see that, oh, wow, these objects are way too big and in too much space, too dense, to be something like two stars orbiting each other or you know, white dwarfs or neutron stars even, but that they have to be black holes. Huh. That's fascinating. I, so mm-hmm. uh, can, can we also talk about one of my favorite concepts that I learned about in class was the concept of dark matter. Mm-hmm. So could you define dark matter and how much dark matter is there? Yes. Uh, so dark matter is basically, well, the, the elementary kind of definition is stuff that we can't see that's exerting gravitational force. And so by stuff that we can't see, what I mean is that we can't detect it in any way. So not in any type of light or not in any type of like particle radiation, like they don't give off protons or they don't give off neutrons or neutrinos or anything. So we can't detect them in any range of the electromagnetic spectrum. And we can't detect the dark matter by any kind of um, uh, objects that it gives off. But it does give off gravitational force because, so that means it has matter, it's made of matter, it has mass because it does exert gravitational force. And we can see that by how uh, things orbit. So they have to be big things like either galaxies orbiting each other in galaxy clusters or the stars in entire galaxies orbiting around the center of the galaxy. We can see the speed at which they're orbiting. And in general, they're orbiting too fast for how much regular matter seems to be there. Since we know, we know dark matter exists because things are orbiting, faster than they should be. So that means there's more mass making more gravity than we expect. And since we can't detect it, then we very originally gave it the name dark matter. And uh, that's what a lot of astronomers and physicists have been looking for ever since. So um, 
Vera Rubin, who the new survey telescope has been named after that will be um, starting in Chile and doing a survey program. Uh, Vera Rubin was one of the first astronomers to really demonstrate that dark matter existed and that galaxies were rotating more quickly than we suppose. And um, so people have been looking for this dark matter. Nobody has conclusively found it yet. And so hmm. at the moment, the best candidate for dark matter is some type of previously unknown subatomic particle that doesn't <laughs> emit or absorb any light, but interacts gravitationally with matter. And so there just must be clouds of this. And so that's a very good question about exactly where it is, you know, what has come from, how it got formed. And uh, it's made more important to understand because from what we can tell, there's much more dark matter than regular matter in the universe. And so it's- How much dark matter is there, well, do you think? It's like 90 or 95% of the matter in the universe is dark matter. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> yes. That's wild. And so, yeah. So we don't even know what it is, but most of the universe exactly. is it. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, so best theory right now is that it's some sort of subatomic particle, yes. you were saying? And so you'll hear wow. different things like wimps or axions or you know, other things like Machos. That. Yeah. Machos, no. Those those were large objects and we've ruled those out. Oh yeah. I see. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. They were in my notes. Yeah, so maybe that happened the in the last fifteen years. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay. A question that I feel like I have to ask, because you're an astronomer, you are a scientist, mm -hmm. you are somebody who is logic driven, who is uh, a fan of science fiction, but also is a scientist who works in the real world mm -hmm. and uh, is able to prove certain things uh, uh, physically. So UFOs are real now. <laughs> we found that out within the last 15 years, certainly. Um it, it didn't really see that coming or that, you know, the government would be the first to say, Hey, these things are real. As an astronomer, do you have a reaction to that? Does it, does it, um, does it mean anything different to you when you see these videos of these objects doing unpredictable things? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd just be curious to hear an astronomer's perspective on it. Yeah. So I believe UFOs exist in the sense that they are in fact unidentified and they're flying, and they're objects. Now, whether they're related to aliens? Sure. I don't think so. Yeah. And so when I see, so first of all, uh, kind of to back up the discussion, uh, it's well known that a lot of things that the common person or even the uncommon person, like somebody flying a plane, um, might think is UFO is actually some kind of fairly normal pedestrian phenomenon that for some reason is seen in a different or unusual way, uh, maybe either close to the horizon, so it looks like a different color, or under strange atmospheric conditions like a storm or fog or something. Um, and so they're, but they're really kind of normal objects, either, you know, Venus or the moon, or uh, as they say, you know, weather balloons, something human made in the air that is just unexpected. And uh, it's also well known that when something is up in the sky and you have no background to compare it to, that it's very hard to judge distance. 
And so then that means that your, your brain kind of fills in a distance implicitly, which then gives you an estimate of size. And so realistically, these things might not be the right size or distance that people are kind of picturing them as. Um, the other thing that I was going to say about UFOs is that when I see some of the images that have, have still not been explained because, yeah, you know, you can't figure out exactly what's happening. It reminds me a lot of magic, just that there's something mm-hmm. happening that we don't quite understand and it can fool us when we look at it. But there's like a rational explanation behind it that a magician is pulling a trick. And I don't mean to say that the aliens are tricking us. What I just mean is that there's something happening that we're not seeing for some reason because it's it's under the table, so to speak, or behind the cape of the magician in kind of a metaphorical way that there's something happening there that we're not understanding. Practically speaking, the scientist in me wants to say that there's not a good reason for aliens to be behind these UFOs because all of my favorite science fiction, (laughs) anyway, I, I love science fiction, but one of the shortcuts in science fiction is to have a transporter, a warp drive, uh, you know, faster than light speed, all of these things. But in reality, we know of no way to move faster than light. And that means that space travel for anybody, whether you're a human or an alien, is going to be difficult. And it's going to take a lot of dedication because it's going to take a lot of time. So even if you're moving close to the speed of light, it's still going to take you a long time to get anywhere of interest. So logically, why would you go to some planet and dance around in their atmosphere? Either you've got a purpose or you, well, you've got a purpose. And so you're going to be doing something, you're going to be hidden or not, you're going to be doing what you're doing. Um, And kind of along those lines, yes, why hide and not hide? And what what is the point of some of that? Now, it's true that we can't think like aliens. So maybe there's a very good alien reason for doing that. But given the kind of the time and expense and commitment that there would be to um, traveling through space, why would you do that? Communication is much, much easier. And so I would think that that would be a first step if you wanted to go out and meet us, meet some other civilization. Yeah. Do you think we should be trying to communicate with other civilizations? That's a good question. Um, I don't think it's risky to do so because, again, since space travel is so hard, even if we somehow manage to tick off another civilization, there's not any way they can get here quickly to do something to us and probably why would they want to again it's so expensive why would they want to do that they could just turn off their microphone and stop talking to us um so yeah so in that sense i don't think we have to worry about bringing down alien revenge or something it's an interesting question more about how it would affect us here on the earth So I don't think sending out the messages really hurts Mm -hmm. anything. What I'm wondering about is when we receive a message, when and if we Mm -hmm. receive a message. And there is somewhat a possibility that if we're sending out messages, we might be more likely to get them back. So that's that's kind Mm -hmm. of the issue with that. So receiving a message here on Earth, 
I would like to think very much that knowing that there are other beings in the universe off the earth might be a unifying effect, a unifying force on humanity on the earth. However, I feel like it probably wouldn't be. And so that's kind of what I worry about is how would it affect people here on the earth? I think it's a valid question, especially given, um, you know, COVID. I, I remember early days of COVID, people being like, oh, it's like the alien invasion that's going to unify all of us. And of course, uh, in some ways it has, but in some ways it has further polarized mm-hmm. parts of communities, of yep. people who, you know, are anti-vax, anti-mask, anti, or might not even believe that COVID is a uh, is real. Yeah. Um, which you could play that out, I assume, uh, you know, in a situation in which we receive a message from another civilization, um, the ripple effects from that would be even more existential for yes. for our species, because uh, we like to think that we're the greatest thing in the world and, and in the universe, and uh, that would be a threat to us mm-hmm. and, and for some people. Um, okay, last question. I want to make sure you get out of here. And I want to make it a happy question. Um, So let's imagine that you have access to some sort of (laughs) spacecraft of some sort. You have access to a UFO, maybe, whatever they are. Um, And you're able to visit some sort of celestial body. What sort of celestial body would you most like to visit? So, yeah, that's a really cool question. And I would actually, I wouldn't. If you limited it to the solar system, I have an answer. But assuming that I could go anywhere, I I would go farther afield. I would really like to go to an area where there's active star formation. And so there's already been a few stars mm. formed. And there are some uh, stars and planets in the process of forming kind of within the giant cloud. So sort of like the Orion Nebula region, how you could picture that. Uh, this is, again, assuming I wouldn't be fried by the radiation from the high mass stars. Uh, I have lots of food, <laughs> but I think that... <laughs> sure. You can take your husband with oh, you, okay, too. thank you. In, in this. Keep yeah, you some yeah, company, yeah. too. Uh, yeah. I think that that would be amazingly uh, gorgeous. I mean, just to look at that and just to see it all play out. There's a scene from the movie, Jodie Foster movie, Contact. There's Mm -hmm. a scene where her character is alone in the spaceship. They're going through the wormholes, which we don't know exist, but, you know, that's what they use. They're going through the wormholes and she stops off temporarily in an air in several different areas with different kinds of astronomical phenomena going on. That is, I think, one of the coolest parts of that movie is just visualizing all of those different things and seeing them. So I I would like to take her tour on that, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you can bring Jodie Foster with you yeah, too on your cool too, on your yeah. UFO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I could keep talking to you forever, but I am going to let you get out of here. I want to say thank you mm-hmm. so much for joining me, Dr. Melissa Hayes Gerke. Uh, you really did inspire me as a young person. I was uh, what nineteen, or I can't do math. Uh, yeah, I was nineteen when I took your class and, uh, and, um, 
And now, you know, all these years later, it is just such a delight mm. to have been able to talk to you and to learn from you uh, some more. Um, if you're a student at UMD, do yourself a favor and enroll in her courses uh, if you're listening out there. And Melissa, I have to add, it's so weird to call you Melissa. Dr. hayes Gerke. Yeah. is there anything else you would like to plug for our audience to check out? Anything that you uh, would like for them to, to, any websites that you have or books that you have that you would like people to read or check out? Actually, I'm going to go a little bit further afield than that. I don't know if you remember when I taught Astro 100 for you, when we got to solar eclipses, I said to you, make sure that you pay attention. There's a solar eclipse coming in 2017 that's going to go right across the U.S. And uh, now it's passed. I said that for so many years, and now that eclipse has passed. However, we do have another solar eclipse that's coming, total solar eclipse, in April 2024. That won't go completely okay. across the U.S., but it'll be kind of in the Midwest and down to Texas. So keep your eyes out for that. Go and see it if you can. And Frank, did you see it in 2017? I did. I did, as a matter of fact, see it. Not only that, I I don't know if you're going to be able to see this because it's in pencil, but I have a note from September 6, 2006, of the next lunar eclipse ah, and yes. the next solar eclipse, Yeah, yeah. Uh, which you which you told us about. Oh, and very good. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So at the time, that was March 3rd, 2007, and August 1st, 2008. Um, okay, April 2024, you said. Yes, that's right. Midwest and Texas. Yeah, it will get big news, I'm sure, again. But it's definitely something worth making a trip for. What did you do in 2017? Hmm. So my husband and I went to Grand Teton National Park because as oh. it turns out, the eclipse path was directly through the park. And oh my yeah, so we were in totality. It was such a beautiful area to be in. And yeah, it was. And everybody, everybody was there. I mean, there were a lot of people. Everybody was there for the eclipse. It was a really big event there along the center line. Yep. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, hopefully you're able to make it out to whatever the Grand mm. Teton is in April 2024. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, this episode was recorded on September 3rd, 2021. Our theme music is from the inimitable Aaron Blyden. My name is Frank Severich, and you can find every episode of Let's Be Frank on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and a review, like and subscribe, and also check out thefrankpage.com. Have a great day and keep being frank. Bye.